I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down asking for money and all that that entails. If you'd like to suggest a new topic, send us a compliment, ask us a question, or otherwise get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at BreakingOutPod, or via email, BreakingOutOfBreakingInPod at gmail.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to our Substack, BreakingOutPod.Substack.com, for bonus content after every single episode. So next week we will be sharing some bonus content about asking for money it'll probably be a combination of like some email templates uh some sort of high level quick tips some of which we might talk about in today's podcast episode some of which might be brand new um Mm -hmm. and you know some other like funding goodies that you might not have heard about so definitely subscribe for that it's five bucks a month or fifty dollars for the full year and you not only get all upcoming posts but you also get all of our archive which you should know by now has a lot of awesome stuff in it so definitely subscribe to our Substack. so Christina, speaking of asking people for money, let's talk about asking for money. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) I feel like we should start with the thing that everyone always wants to talk about and know about and what has kind of been like the gold standard of funding in the independent world before crowdfunding and sort of other things existed, and that is investors. So the thing about investors is that people are always like, how do I get to investors? Where are investors? And the reality is there are film financiers that are kind of people who put money into uh, funds for the kinds of movies that win at the Indie Spirit Awards every year. Like these are sort of like industry type funders that you cannot really get to unless you have a producer attached who has you know, won an Indie Spirit Award before. Like, that's just the reality. Uh, so we're not really going to talk about them because that is that is just, like, a group of rich cinephiles who expect, like, a certain amount of acclaim and recognition and possibly return on investment for funding specific kinds of films. And they only will talk to specific producers who they've worked with before who have specific access that they are aware of. That's that world of investors that are just like not for you yet if you're listening if, to this you, podcast if, and you don't know yeah, if you're like yet. how do I get access to them you you don't have access to them exactly. like the point at which you have to ask you are not ready for that yet and that's yeah that's just and you may not ever be like I don't have access to them and I don't know if I ever will be because I don't make those kinds of movies generally speaking but maybe I will get a certain amount of acclaim and then I meet the right producer and then all of a sudden I have access and that's just like the point of that is like you have to build up a certain amount of acclaim on your own or you have to have those connections and that's just like we're not really going to talk about that because yeah it's behind a door that doesn't open (laughs) for for (laughs) most people. None of us have the key so it's not worth worrying about. So what about the other kind of investor? Okay, so the other kind of investor is a person that has enough money that writing a check that's somewhere between $5,000 and like $50,000 is a feasible thing for them. Like that they could just sort of write that in the way and and it would be like a tax write-off in the way that you know, you might not think about dropping $20 on something. You are trying to find those kinds of people. But when we're talking about $5,000 or $10,000 or $20,000 or even $50,000 and they are uh, typically, you know, doctors, lawyers, 
people who are making a lot of fucking money. (laughs) And here's the thing. I learned, so I also, like a few years ago, let's say four or five years ago, I was like, what's the deal with investors? How do I get to them? How do people raise money outside of crowdfunding? Because I knew crowdfunding in and out, but I did not understand how you get like real film financing. So I got a consultation with Diane Bell and she basically broke down her method for me. And then later this podcast episode came out, which is basically that same method. And I don't want to just like regurgitate what she has in that episode. We're going to link to it so that you can get to it. But generally speaking, her method is to make lists. So you like, she tells you to make a list of all the people you know who could theoretically write you a $5,000 check, okay? And then she has like strategies for how you get them on board as investors from there. The thing about that though is... And she's like a very, I think she's lovely and and she's very positive, like positive thinking very much about like anyone can do it. The problem is that truly not everyone knows people who can write $5,000 checks. (laughs) Like it's nothing. And that's sort of the barrier to entry that she like doesn't acknowledge. And And I do think it's very rooted in white privilege, whether or not she sees that. Also, even if you do know people who know people, it's a lot easier for someone who's white (laughs) <laughs> to get a stranger to trust them with that amount of money. Like there's so much, you know, bias going on in terms of who, and like, of course, she's a woman, so that's a barrier for her as well. Like m- men are given, like gambled on, you know, a lot easier than women mm-hmm. are. But like that's made harder. harder. for women yeah. of color, people of color. It's also worth mentioning that like these aren't just opinions of ours. Like, you know, bias exists. But also like even in, you know, more traditional like loans, like, uh, black couples have a much harder time getting home loans. Oh God, yeah. Uh, regardless of income level, like a, a black couple and a white couple both applying for a home loan with the same level of household income, uh, disproportionately is in favor of the white couple. Right. Statistically, it is less likely that you will get money if you are from a traditionally biased against group in the financial sector, which is mm-hmm. anyone who's not a white man. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's very hard, but it really does start there. Um, it is about who you know. And if you don't know anyone who has that kind of money, who makes that kind of money, or someone who can introduce you to those kinds of people, it's nearly impossible to get investors for your film. I had a friend who is a white man who took it upon himself to join one of those houses in New York, like the the Soho house and like one of those like membership based places where it's like rich people can like network with each other in this exclusive space. And I think he had like a 2% conversion rate and managed to, it took him like a year and a half, but he managed to raise, I think really only like $200,000, but that's like a lot of money, obviously, but in the world of film funding, that's not a lot of money. But it took him like nearly two years and he only had a 2% conversion rate. He had to network the shit out of it. He had to spend a bunch of money because that membership is not fucking cheap. And he had to be a white man in that room, you know? Question about these kind of investors uh, Mm -hmm. from your experience, Christina. Is this a situation where, because generally speaking, like you mentioned, the film financiers, a lot of the times what they're looking for is a return on investment. Mm -hmm. An investment implies that it will come back to you in some way. Uh, Are in in your understanding, are this like, quote unquote, smaller check investors, are they expecting a return or are they expecting 
this is sunk, but I can write it off on my taxes as like a charitable contribution or something. So I, I think that there's kind of two schools of thought from different producers I've spoken to. And some do advise you to essentially lie, like to say that there is a return on investment in film in the way that there could be in business. So like you're investing in a startup that's going to like sell big and you're going to get a payday. Some of them do, especially if like, you know, because some people love movies, but they're really naive about film and they don't know mm -hmm. that only 2% of independent film make their money back. That's not even profit. That's just breaking even 2%. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so they don't know that. So they think like, oh, Hollywood, billions of dollars, like I'm going to hit it big. And some producers do operate, especially ones that come from a lot of privilege where they know a lot of people with money. They're like sort of car salesman -y types of people where they just like burn investors. So they get investors for one film. It doesn't make the money that they promised. They, those investors will never invest again, but whatever. They got their film made. They look for another group of investors and they do that. That doesn't feel sustainable. It's obviously like a very privileged thing to be able to do to know that many rich people that you can burn through them like that. So here's the thing. Nobody who knows anything about investing would ever invest in movies for a return. Like no one. If they know anything about investing, they would never, ever, ever, ever put their money in, in films because it's not a place to make even your money back. It is a loss. It is a, is a tax write-off at best. And so the ones that I think are doing an integrity with integrity are looking for people that they can go to again and again for every new film. So they are trying to be very, very transparent about what they're actually getting out of the exchange. And I would say Diane Bell very much falls in that, in that sort of pool of producer. Um, and her like approach is to make it clear that there is the potential for a return and not only a return, but like a 20% interest so that there is, it isn't like a charity, like you're genuinely, there's potential, but that's not why you're giving money. It is usually the strategy with non-industry investors is to do a lot of the things that we talk about in crowdfunding, but to like reframe your mind so that you can like think that the value is worth it. So for instance, when we're talking about giving money to crowdfunding campaigns, which we're going to talk about at the end of this episode, because there's a lot to say and we're going to say that <laughs> for the end. Um, you will be telling people like you want to join a team, right? You, we have a mission that you care about that you want to see us bring to fruition. There's, you know, exclusive access, getting to feel part of making it, getting to say that you were, you know, like you made it happen, uh, making them feel like they're special and they're part of the team and we, they, it couldn't have happened without them and that they like are part of the movie making world. All of that is in crowdfunding, right? And so I would say like me personally, I believe that what I'm asking you to contribute to in a crowdfunding campaign, like all of what I'm selling you, I believe is worth what I'm asking of you. It's hard for me to say all of that to someone who I'm asking to write a $10,000 check because $10,000 in my mind is worth so much more, but $10,000 to them is the equivalent of $25 to someone else. And so what you're trying to do is like reframe your own perspective and be able to talk about these large amounts of money as if it's just pocket change. Right. And, and so you're selling them on the mission, you're selling them on the prestige maybe, you're selling them on the exclusivity. It's about that, like trying to find whatever the thing is that resonates with them and getting them to see a dollar value there. 
and 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 converting people that way. And I think that uh, just to wrap this section up, it's worth like we started with this because we have the least to say about it, and it may be frustrating if you clicked on this episode and we're like, how do I get investors? And our answer is no rich people or you're not ready to get investors. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's important for us to all acknowledge that. Like, you know, I would love to be able to pick up the phone and be like, I've got a pitch for you. You know, like Mm -hmm. I've got a pitch for everything I'm working on. I don't think that what I'm working on is worthless, but I also recognize that like I have two choices if I want to get something made. I can wait a really long time. I can invest two years in networking potentially and, you know, have a a conversion rate that's probably going to be even lower than the white guy who could afford to spend two years networking. Or I figure out a way to make it myself. And Mm -hmm. if you don't know how to find investors right now, you are not ready to find investors. And that has nothing to do with the quality of the work that you're making or the quality of work that you could be making. It's just a matter of being realistic with yourself about where your money is coming from. And I don't think there's anything wrong with making a lot of stuff without investors, because in many ways, the more cooks in the kitchen you have, speaking as someone who's worked for many startups who had to, you know, be at the beck and call of many investors, uh, in a lot of cases, that's actually worse. Yes, you have money, but like, is that the point? Like, is the point of (laughs) financing your film to just have a lot of money? We should acknowledge that also you create tiers of, you know, what the producer levels are. So this person, maybe $5,000 is the minimum to buy in. But if you give 10000 or if you give 15000 you give 20000 the more power they have. So like the more decision-making mm-hmm. power they have. So rem- that's also really important to remember that in this version of funding, you are giving up creative control or at least mm-hmm. like full autonomy. You, you will have to answer to them before you make a decision a lot, a lot of the time. You'll have to consult them, keep them informed, at the very least make them think that they have a say, even if mm-hmm. they don't actually. Right. Sort of, sort of like the way a board works for mm-hmm. a company, they sort of become your board that you have to keep informed and answer to to some degree. And that that's also why it's hard because like – it's hard enough to find anyone who can spend that money, but then you also want to be selective about who you allow to invest because you want right. to make sure that you are not going to like hate this person, hate having to engage with them, or that their like views don't align with you and, and they're going to push back on certain things. You know, it's, it's hard enough just to find someone who can write that check, but then to think that you also then have to like filter through to find the right fit. It's, it's like it is sort of a needle in a haystack situation. Unfortunately, that was like, the way to fund for such a long time and and there are other avenues but uh i I just want to say like obviously the big money is still in investing investors like we're going to talk about crowdfunding we're talking about grants but we are usually talking about smaller amounts of money there and and so one tip that i will say if you really are not connected to the world of and people with money is to find yourself a producer who is and really the thing that you can do is um, go to festivals, watch films, try and connect with the producers who made those films at those levels, or like go to film school and find someone who is maybe like the hotshot student producer up and coming and isn't at your level yet, but like can get you access in a way to money that you can't on your own. And so you can kind of like sure. be giving each other something. Because the or hardest- the alumni network and- Yeah. The hardest thing about finding a producer who has like 
different access than you is that they probably are trying to find a director that's above you. You know, because every mm -hmm. time I'm always looking at like the latest, you know, horror movie to come out of nowhere and looking at those producers and it's like, I would have been the perfect director to partner with that producer before they made this movie. But now that they've made this movie, they're trying to go right above me, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. how do you find that producer before they're there yet so that you can be that director they do that with? And it can be very hard um, as well. But uh, utilizing like alumni networks and looking at schools and looking at festivals, especially shorts, like looking at shorts if you're trying to make a feature, finding a producer who's also trying to break into features but has like access to funding is, is kind of your best bet, I would say. Yeah, I think that's 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 a good place to transition. Before we move on, I just want to add a little disclaimer here, and really I should have said it at the beginning. We are not tax professionals. I really want to stress that we're not tax professionals. We're not finance professionals. And so before you take any of our specifically tax-related advice, please, please, please consult a tax professional and accountant someone who can advise you to your specific situation. Everything we're saying is is very general and, and very rooted in our own experiences, as well as sort of anecdotal things that we know and have heard, but we're not experts. So that's just a really important disclaimer. And like everything we say, it's it's a starting point and, and we recommend you do your own research because there is no one size fits all for any of this stuff. It's all about per project, per filmmaker. Okay, so having said that, Brie, let's move on to fiscal sponsors. So um, as far as I understand it, fiscal sponsorships is largely just your your budget is a tax write-off. Like you, you partner with a, a 501c3 who like anyone who wants to give you money goes through them and therefore yep. they get a tax write-off. So it's considered a charitable donation rather than just like a gift that you still have to account for in your income tax. Um, and there are fiscal sponsors that are like film specific, mm -hmm. like uh, what is it? Fractured Atlas is Fractured Atlas one. That's uh, it. You can also be like theater and other arts. Got it. And From the Heart Productions is one. Um, mm -hmm. I was offered a fiscal sponsorship by From the Heart Productions a couple of years ago because I applied for a grant and didn't get it. Women in film, like they do a, fis a fiscal sponsor. Mm -hmm. New York Foundation of the Arts also does fiscal mm -hmm. sponsorships. There's a lot. And also technically, can't any 501c3 become a fiscal sponsor? Yeah. I've definitely heard of, of like um, organizations partnering with films that are making work in the theme of that organization. So like a mental health mm -hmm. advocacy organization partnering uh, and giving their fiscal sponsorship status to a filmmaker making a mental health film, stuff like that. Yeah, that's a pretty common thing in documentaries, especially. The, mm -hmm. the thing about fiscal sponsors is that, as Brie said, you don't have to claim the money yourself. They claim the money. So it's like you never got any income because all money, whether it's crowdfunding, whether it's grant money, has to be claimed as income coming towards either you or the business entity that you've formed. And uh, in this case, it like washes it from you having to claim it, but the trade-off usually is some sort of fee. So you have to pay like 3%, I think is the standard with fiscal sponsors, that they will take 3% or whatever percentage off of whatever you bring in in, in contributions. Yes. And in my opinion, at least, at least on the crowdfunding side of things, which is where I generally interact with fiscal sponsors, um, I would say for the most part, people don't need them 
unless mm. the taxes are a concern of yours and you really want to make sure that like you're you're protected from the tax burden especially if you're raising more than like 10 to 15,000. dollars um if you are crowdfunding from a country and don't have the like a US or Canadian bank account but the crowdfunding platform you're using like for instance a Seed and Spark requires you to have a bank account based in one of those places getting a fiscal sponsor based would get around that um and also if you think you have enough contributors who would contribute more if they had the option of writing it off on their taxes. Um, because otherwise, for the most part, it's not worth the fee. Or I guess the other reason why you might want to attach a fiscal sponsor to your crowdfunding campaign is if instead of just being like a general filmmakers or artists uh, uh, platform, um, they are a foundation that is working towards the same things you are. So like Christina said, a documentary filmmaker partnering mm-hmm. with a, an organization that's already doing work in that space, and they will give you access to like their other donors. They will shout yeah. you out in their newsletter. They will promote on your behalf because you are working towards the same goals those would be reasons to go with a fiscal sponsor but otherwise it's probably not worth it and most general fiscal sponsors who do a lot of fiscal sponsorships are not going to promote on your behalf so you're not getting any added benefit on that level yeah and i want to so just like to go back to investors really quickly an investor when they give money to your film they are they are like making an investment into the business entity. So like the LLC or or S Corp or whatever that you formed that owns the film. And so that is like what they're claiming on their taxes. They don't need you to be to have a fiscal sponsor in order to claim that. They're claiming the fact that they invested into a business that is like not making any money or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. as opposed to a donor who wants a tax write-off for making right. a donation, then you do need to either be a 5013C or to have a fiscal sponsor who can give them that tax write-off. Yes, definitely. But in generally speaking, lower amount people don't care about yeah, this. Yeah, they don't care about um, it, yeah. Like I, a lot of times around the holidays when I'm trying to tell people don't crowdfund because crowdfunding during the holidays is the worst time to do it. They're like, well, do you think that people will see this as a donation if I get a fiscal sponsor and like they'll think of it as like the thing that they do in the holidays where like they give to charities and I'm like no of course not because you're not a charity Mm -hmm. you're still making a movie just because they can get a tax write-off doesn't matter and also the average crowdfunding contribution is $25 I'm not going to claim $25 off of my taxes like I'm not going to (laughs) add I'm not going to waste more time doing my taxes so I can get like two more dollars back on my 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 tax refund you yeah. know it's not worth it for most people no yeah like you just want to kind of calculate how much you're going to lose in that fee mm-hmm. for every transaction versus how much you really think you're going to get just because you have a fiscal sponsor because really it's the big big donors or contributors backers that care about that tax write-off and if you're not anticipating anyone giving you like big big money then it's probably not worth the fee that you're trading for having them again unless you're raising enough money collectively that without an llc you are worried about the tax burden oh and the other thing that transitions us into grants is that grants sometimes require you to have a fiscal sponsor in order to receive the money especially if it's for a specific project If it's for an individual artist, usually that's not the case, but when it's for a film or like, uh, you know, an organization or an event, like a film festival, usually you need to have, either need to be a nonprofit yourself or have a fiscal sponsor who can collect that money. And so that's an instance where you would definitely want to have uh, a sponsor on board. And so that is a perfect transition into talking about grants. (laughs) 
So do you have anything you, you want to say about grants? I've never really invested a lot of time, ha, invested a <laughs> lot of time in thinking about them because my I tend to work fast enough that like waiting for a grant application cycle to come around and seeing if I was selected, like I would rather have just made my project. Yeah. So it is hard because there are so many grants. Um and it is a long waiting period. And then the window to submit is usually shorter than than like festivals stay open. And so usually like you have to get it in that window or you've missed it. And I personally have submitted to some and I've like I've really only gotten one grant in my whole life, but I haven't submitted to that many. And that's largely because I do genre work and not many are genre friendly. It's just like a bias against. It's the same for comedy. Comedy yeah. tends to yeah. not get it. Like most grants tend to be in my experience, like features and documentaries and even features. Yeah. You have Dramas. to make, be making a very specific kind of yeah. feature. So there are your grants that are like genre specific or identity specific that are like for film. And then there are like local grants, which I think personally I've had more luck with and I think are a little bit easier because it's about just like supporting local artists as opposed to competing with all of the filmmakers that could be working in this genre or this subject or whatever. Um, so for instance, like the, the Queen's Council of the Arts, they do an artist grant every year that's just $3,000. There's also um, the NIFA, which you mentioned for fiscal sponsors. They have one. I was on the jury um, in 20... Wow, that was just 2020. It was in February. It felt like much longer <laughs> ago. Um, but I was on the jury for the the Women in Film grant for shorts specifically. And that was a $25,000 post-production grant. So like there's some real money there. And they have a feature one as well and they have a doc one as well. So that one's pretty good because they break it up into different categories. Um, but even like, I obviously know the New York ones because I live in New York, but pretty much every state and every sort of big city probably has something for the arts. I mean, I, I say that not really knowing what it's like to live in, like, a red state. Yeah, they're, like, check the film office, because, like, yeah. the government-sponsored, like, film office of that state. All of the states have them. Some are more, like, supportive than others, because some mm -hmm. states just, like, they they don't have enough support from the local government, so it's not worth investing time in. But that would be where I would start, to find yeah. local grants. And what's um, nice, what's nice about those is that they usually, it's not one winner. Like, with... Um, national grants that are for that are like film oriented and are for specific uh, like one time subjects like this this is the whatever name of filmmaker type grant um, those usually tend to be like one time winners who gets $50,000 who gets whatever but the local grants they usually are like up to X amount for instance mm -hmm. the the NIFA one that I was a jury member for they were going to give up to $250,000 to however many filmmakers. Like, it was up to us to decide how much up to $25,000 each film could get. And then, like, we would mm. sort of... It was like a puzzle, kind of deciding what who's going to get what and what does that equal and, like, how much do we have left? So who can we give more to? And then, like, we would debate, okay, if we only give them, like, 10% of what they're asking for... Like, and is that better than giving this one who's who's going to get, like, 70% of what they're asking for? It was all about, like, impact and weighing those things. Um, and I was also, last year for Queen's Council of the Arts, I was one of the jury on that. And similarly, 
I think it was like 10 people were going to get $3,000. And Queen's Council of the Arts does a ton of different categories. So I was actually in the photography one because they, they were out of slots in the filmmaking one. So there was like visual arts, filmmaking, photography. Theater, probably. Theater. There was music. music. There was um, dance uh, was another oh, one. Mm-hmm. So like in each category, they were giving like 10 people each $3,000. So like, you know, there's a lot of funding there. So you may be surprised. It's a lot easier to get those grants. And generally speaking, getting one grant makes it easier for you to get other grants, which is like an unfortunate thing where it's, with everything, like once someone has chosen you, it more people want to choose you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that I've seen a lot of. Any tips and tricks from being behind the scenes of grants, like things that are absolute no-nos, are absolute, you have to make sure this is included. Like what, what can you tell us about that? Some quick tips are being really concise and compelling at the same time in what you are saying, because uh, the worst thing about a grant application is if you just like ramble on and on and also if you've kind of said a, like a ton without saying anything, where mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of the time um, the questions are about strategy or like intention and you're talking about like just your personal, like what inspired you to make this thing and you're just like rambling on about that. Like that's not what they want to hear. They want to hear often about impact, like what are you hoping to get out of it and what are you hoping for people to get out of it and why it matters. And one tip that I got from a producer who has like gotten grants over and over again, and and also something I realized being on the other side, is that you wanna be political without being political. So for instance, if you're making a film that is about the Muslim ban that uh, Trump put into place, you wanna talk about in your application the impact it's had on Muslims, like the negative impact it's had on Muslims. You want to talk about, you know, what it like, the message it's sending. You do not want to talk about how Trump sucks. Like you do not want to say like, hmm. oh, you, you don't want to share your personal political opinions, but you do want to talk around that. And so like talking about representation, talking about inclusion, talking about the impact you hope for your work to have, like in the positive way, like to raise awareness about this issue or to like highlight this thing, but you don't want to say because like our government is trash and is doing this to people like that. So that's Mm -hmm. something that it's a fine line because you will find that people across the board, obviously people across the sort of political spectrum are part of the jury on these things, but also with some state or city oriented grants, they're not allowed to give money to like political parties or anything that is sort of associated with mm-hmm. a political agenda or or organization. So like that's just something to look out for. Make sure that your budget is not just the grant amount because it looks then like this grant is going to make or break your film and that there isn't external strategy and support and funding. And so you want to make sure that you put together a real budget, and that means that even if you're getting a whole bunch of stuff for free, you you mark that as in-kind. So people understand that you, A, know how to make a film. Because that's the other thing, too, is like, so this was a misconception I had early on. It was like, well, I can make a movie for really cheap, so that makes me look more appealing because they're going to get more for less with me. But... They don't know, and this is another thing too, uh, with the jury, you're restricted to how much past work you're allowed to look at. 
Like the application sometimes says you get 10 minutes of, of password footage or you get five pages or, you know, in the photography one, it was like you can submit three work samples, three photos, right? And if I Googled those people, I could maybe see that they have this whole body of work, but I wasn't allowed to make my decision based on that. And so if my work sample isn't like what I could do with that money because it's like a no budget project, so it's like what I've done with no money, let's say, and I'm asking them for money so that I can do better, you wanna show them that you actually understand like what a movie costs and that they're not gonna get that product. So instead it's like, okay, this was a film I made on $500, but I actually need $50,000 to make this thing. And yes, $20,000 is all in kind, but I also need you know, your $15,000 grant and I'm gonna crowdfund another $15,000, right? Like that is mm -hmm. how you sort of show them that you know how to make a movie, you know what it costs, and that they can trust your skill and ability. And it's not just about your past work and it's not just your ability to stretch a dollar, but that you actually like understand filmmaking as a craft. Mm -hmm. And the value of a dollar, yeah. whether it's an in-kind dollar or a grant dollar or an investor dollar or your own money. Um, so we have in-kind exchanges on uh, here. Is there much that you want to say about this topic? Because like, I think we we kind of covered in-kind exchanges in our budgeting episode with Polkett. Yeah. We also actually talked about grants in, in Polkett's episode as well. Um, so definitely go listen to that one. Episode six with Polkett, he talks about like grants and he talks about in-kind exchanges and how you can make the value of a dollar stretch, but also you should know what the value of the things you get for free is so you can adequately quote the budget of your movie. Just because you spent this amount amount of cash doesn't mean that that's how much it costs to make your movie. So we know that a lot of you are here because Christina and I both worked at Seed and Spark, and that's probably how you met one or both of us, um, or certainly you knew that about us. So of course, mm -hmm. inevitably, we're going to bring up crowdfunding. Um, so I, I thought we, because there's a lot of educational material that Christina and I have both personally created that you can find for free, we're not just going to sit here and rehash the crowdfunding yeah. to build independence workshop that, you know, Christina taught for four years that I am now teaching. Like we're, we're not going to do that. We are going yeah. to talk about crowdfunding, but if you're looking for like comprehensive crowdfunding education, the work that we have both contributed to the Seed and Spark library is going to be the best thing for you. So we'll, we'll of course be linking all of that information. Um, and it's, it's pretty easy to find, but, uh, yeah. first I thought we would break down, um, the different theoretical platforms people would use for crowdfunding and try to look at them as objectively as possible. So I, I figured sure. the four most common that I've seen are Indiegogo, GoFundMe, Kickstarter, and Seed and Spark. Now there are others. iFundWomen mm -hmm. is out there. Um, there's a queer one that just popped up that has a similarly generic name with like a queer pun. Um, there are other there are others out there, but I would say these are the big four. So yeah. uh, let's start with GoFundMe. Christina, do you think GoFundMe is a good platform for filmmaking crowdfunding? I do not think it is a good platform. <laughs> also, just for everyone, I do not work at Seed and Spark anymore, so mm -hmm. you can trust everything I'm about to say because no one is paying me to say otherwise. <laughs> um, I don't trust GoFundMe because I think that it's a platform to raise awareness about how much our American capitalism sucks. And that is just <laughs> that everyone has to crowdfund for their medical bills or for mm -hmm. their family member's funeral or yep. for their rent or just generally for hardships um, because our shitty government doesn't take care of people. And I think it's absolutely horrendous that that has to exist. And I'm 
but I'm not saying that it shouldn't exist. Like we need it and I'm grateful mm -hmm. for it. If I had to crowdfund for a hardship, I would use GoFundMe. That is not the tone I want to set for my film. <laughs> yeah, it's not an appropriate place to crowdfund a film. And even, you know, there are filmmaking campaigns on GoFundMe and there are ones that are successful. So don't mm -hmm. try to gotcha. But like you have to... You have to admit there is an implicit understanding of if you launch a GoFundMe, it's for, you know, healthcare. It's for mm -hmm. maybe a vacation or wedding or something like mm -hmm. that. It's but it's for non-project based things. This is charity. GoFundMe yeah. is a charity place and your film is not a charity. You are not a charity and associating yourself with a platform that is known for charity is just not a good look. It looks yeah. like you're taking up space, even though like that doesn't make sense because technically, even if you're running a Kickstarter, you're taking up space, quote unquote, on people's feeds. But like there is an implicit understanding of what happens on GoFundMe and it's not film crowdfunding. So it's going to work against you. And even if you are successful, it's going to be harder there. Yeah. Yeah. I also think there is something to be said for this kind of general question that Paul Robinson had on Twitter um, that I think encompasses our opinions on a lot of these crowdfunding mm -hmm. platforms. So Paul uh, wanted to know, um, I was always curious about the all or nothing approach versus making what you can with the money you're able to raise. With us, we can make a film regardless. It's just a matter of what extra luxuries we can afford, like better lenses, more crew, etc. And I think that this absolutely factors into both Christina and I's opinions of various crowdfunding platforms. So all or nothing versus keep what you raise. Yeah, so on principle, I'm just not a fan of flexible funding platforms, and I've felt that way since the beginning. Like when I, I first crowdfunded in 2011, and at that point, Kickstarter had been around for about like two years, and crowdfunding really wasn't well known. I think Indiegogo had launched recently, and I was deciding between the two, and I very a big part of why I chose Kickstarter was because of the all or nothing of Kickstarter. Um, the problem with flexible, when you look at it from the filmmaker perspective, of course it's appealing because you get whatever you get. So like mm -hmm. you don't lose There's your money. There's less risk. Right, it's like, I'm still gonna walk away with something. However, you have to look at it from the contributor perspective, from the supporter perspective, where you get whatever you get. And like, if that's not enough to accomplish it, then they lose their money and get nothing out of it. And so it's a lot harder to build momentum and urgency in a flexible campaign because people know that you're going to get the money no matter what. And so two things. One, it's hard to get money early because people who have been burned before by, by flexible campaigns, which I most definitely have. I have given mm -hmm. to so many campaigns that raise like, 10% of what they were going for, never made the thing, but they kept my money. So people who have been burned before or are generally skeptical of like flexible funding are not going to give early. And so it's really hard to get momentum going. And there is a stat across pretty much every platform that 90% of campaigns that succeed get to 30% uh, in the first week. And so you want to get, you want strangers to come across your your campaign and feel like, oh, this is going to succeed. I want to jump on this bandwagon. And if everyone is coming to your campaign early and feeling really hesitant, then you're never going to get that momentum you need to get you to the finish line. The other th thing about it is that even if you have enough supporters who are like all about supporting you early to get you to that 30%, most of you, I would say like 25% of your goal, the last 25% is raised in the last like 24 hours, maybe 48 hours, but it's that last minute push 
that's like, if I don't hit it, I'm going to lose it. That gets people to like start spreading the word like crazy. People start doubling, even, you know, tripling their contributions. People like want to get you to that finish line. It is nearly impossible to create that urgency without that all or nothing. And so while you may feel like I'm going to make it no matter what and I just want to get what I can get, if you really want to not have to fund it yourself and really want to actually have money to pay people and all these things, you need to kind of set yourself up in that mindset that this is all or nothing and I am going to push for it. And so it's not just motivating to people, it's other people, it's motivating to you because like you've created stakes for yourself so you're going to fucking make sure you hit that goal. And like I know for myself that I always make over 100% of what I'm going for. And that is because I use that final day momentum to really push people. And I I make sure that I've got like messaging in place that's gonna build on that that urgency. And, mm-hmm. and I've had, like I had one person give $5,000 to my campaign in the last two hours because we were $1,000 away from our goal. And I was giving away an EP credit at that. And it was a total stranger on Twitter. And like, that's not something that's happened, that's happened once. Like it's not a thing that can always happen. <laughs> but the point is that because I was like pushing to get us to our goal and I was getting all these people to retweet me and getting all this momentum going for the last hour, someone came along and wanted to be that hero and also get an EP credit out of it. And like, I don't right. think that would have happened in a flexible campaign. It just would not yeah. have. And two more things on that is that like the people who do know you may not give you money because they do know that you're going to make the film no matter what. So like, why would I bother giving you money? Because like, if I generally like your work um, and like, I don't really feel like giving you money right now because there's a pandemic because I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I don't get paid very much, like whatever it is, I'm going to be like, well, I know they're going to make it. So like, I'm, there's no stakes in the game mm-hmm. for me. Like, you know, the difference between you getting better lenses and me getting a movie that is markedly different from what I'd get otherwise is relatively low as a supporter. So that's the one hand. But on the other hand, it's a lot harder to get strangers on board because like, I barely want to give a flexible campaign um, money if it's a friend of mine. I definitely don't trust a stranger with my money because implicitly crowdfunding is a promise that you're making. You're saying Mm -hmm. this is the, like, I'm, I'm as a supporter, I assume that this is not an arbitrary amount of money that you're setting out to raise. I assume I need this money to accomplish the film that I've just pitched you. And if I like that film and I want to see that film, but your, your funding is flexible, I don't trust that I'm going to get what you've promised me because if you can keep my money no matter what, even if you do complete the film, I'm always going to think of it as, well, this is the less good version and I kind of wish they hadn't gotten the money unless they had raised the budget that they claimed they needed for it. So it's a Mm -hmm. lot of psychology, to be honest, between all or nothing versus keep what you raise and it's psychology with between you and the supporter. So mm-hmm. like always remember to think about from and when you're crowdfunding, think about people who have no idea who you are, who ideally all of us want to reach during crowdfunding. Nobody wants to just hit up their friends and family. That's always the concern with crowdfunding. And the mm-hmm. best way to not do that is to build something that's bulletproof, even if they don't know who you are. You know, you yeah. should not depend on people having context for the fact that you can make any film, even if you didn't have the extra luxuries. You shouldn't bank on the fact that like you signing a script is going to be a fun thing for your grandmother to like frame in her house. Like everything that you do should be designed to appeal to the people this movie was made for. 
not the people that you personally know that you think you could wheedle a couple of bucks out of. Yeah. And that's why I think like really you want to kind of step back when it comes to crowdfunding and also make sure that you're not just friend and family funding, but your audience funding. And that is like building an actual audience. So it's not just trying to ask everyone you've ever met in your life to give you money because they know you and like you, Mm -hmm. but because you're making a film that there's an audience for and that that audience wants to see it you know, come to fruition, to be part of it, to, to, to feel a sense of ownership, even if it's not literal ownership. And it's all about strategy. It's not about, you like, you don't just, like, put up a campaign and hope people give you money and then take whatever you get. Like, that's not crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, like, the equivalent of just, like, putting, you know, a donate button on your website and hoping sometimes right. people will click it. Like, you mm-hmm. know? And they, they never do. I've had a donate <laughs> button on my website since 2006. No one has ever given me money. Um, and I had active readers for a while. Um, but briefly to just finish our conversation about, like, the differences between platforms. So I mentioned that because we were about to transition to talk about Indiegogo, which mm-hmm. d- has non flexible funding options. But even when I see campaigns that, you know, didn't check flexible funding on Indiegogo, the, you know, I don't want to call it the stank, but like the, the, the assumption Mm -hmm. that I make when somebody funds on Indiegogo is, oh, they wanted flexible funding. So like, even if you don't use flexible funding on Indiegogo, that's the impression people get. I will say they have a good app. The times that I crowdfunded with them, the best part about crowdfunding with Indiegogo for me was that they had a really good app so that if I was like out and about during the day or at work or something, and I wasn't near a computer, but I wanted to send somebody a thank you message and like keep track of my progress. Indiegogo has a really good app for that. um, And it made it very easy to manage my campaign when I was away from my desk. I think that it's a better option than GoFundMe in the sense that it does have more of like a creative feel to it, like it's for creators. However, it's still, you can crowdfund literally anything on there. And before there was GoFundMe, there were people crowdfunding their rent. From my perspective, they generally don't care about quality in that way. Mm -hmm. They just want to get their percentage. Exactly. And and to the flexible thing, I think it's it's problematic in that even if you're not doing flexible funding, people associate Indiegogo so much with flexible funding that they might just assume yours is. And so then you don't even get the like urgency of the all or nothing because people don't realize that your campaign is all or nothing because it's on a flex like a traditionally flexible Uh, platform. And I also didn't like that they used to charge you more for choosing flexible. So it was like... That was what I was about to bring up is that I don't know if it's that they charge you more for flexible funding, but if you do flexible funding, the percentage that Indiegogo keeps of your money is bigger if you don't hit your goal. So I think in our case, it was like seven or 8% they would keep um, if we didn't meet our goal, but if we got to a hundred or more percent of our goal, uh, it would be the standard flat fee of 5%, which is what all the platforms pretty much do at this point. Yeah. And that always felt like just taking advantage of filmmakers insecurities, you know, Mm -hmm. like that, that just didn't fly with me. It's like not, I don't think it's a worthwhile platform, but I know I have supported campaigns on it and I do know from like a tech perspective, it's, it's probably like second best. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And first best, I think we could both agree, is going to be Kickstarter. So let's talk oh, about yeah, Kickstarter. 100%. So I've never I mean, run a campaign on Kickstarter, but you have run a couple. Yeah, I've run two on Kickstarter. Uh, and it was started by a bunch of people in tech. So like they, from a workflow perspective, from an aesthetic perspective, from just like intuitive ease of use, it is 
top tier, right? Like it is definitely number one in the game. They're constantly updating. And I think that it is like, we're going to talk about Seated Spark a bunch <laughs> in a moment. If I, if Seed and Spark didn't exist, I would go back to crowdfunding on Kickstarter. Like that's where I land. And mm -hmm. even when I switched, I did two campaigns on Kickstarter and then Seed and Spark launched and I met the people there and I decided to do my third campaign on there even before I eventually got hired. And even then I was like, I had no beef with Kickstarter. I had success on it. It just like wasn't checking certain boxes that Seed and Spark checked. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Mm -hmm. But Kickstarter is all or nothing. They do have actual like standards of what qualifies as a project. Yeah, you so have to you, be approved to go live. Yeah, you can't just like crowdfund for any old thing. It has to be an artistic project of some kind. And it is well, like, not artistic. Like, like, it, like they have creative. products too. Yeah, it has to be, be like a project a, though. It a can't be a creation of something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can't crowdfund your rent or vacation yeah. on there. Yeah. And so... On the more like pro side, it has become sort of a, a verb for crowdfunding in and of itself. Mm -hmm. People will say, I'm yes. kickstarting something. Even yeah, if like I'm not Googling it, I'm kickstarting yes. it. Like, exactly. it's the same. Um, and so there is name recognition. There is maybe like a level of trust that they've built that, you know, other platforms maybe don't have. Um, on the more con side, though, I would say that they by and large are for tech products like that's where their mm -hmm. focus is because that's where their money is they make millions of dollars off of gadgets and other things are kind of there but they don't get like the same attention and I would say that the audience on Kickstarter when it comes to like gadgets there are people who are maybe perusing to see the latest thing but when it comes to film I don't really think that there is an advantage to one platform over another. Mm -hmm. It is very much the audience that you build and bring. And yeah. there is a yeah, None of these platforms are going to give you organic discovery. Nobody yeah. is sitting on these platforms anymore, at least, and just waiting for like the next big movie that they want to fund. Like 95% or more of the traffic that comes to your crowdfunding page is going to be a result of you driving traffic to your page through press, Absolutely. through emails, through social, and through friends sharing. If there, even if there is like a sort of a certain percentage of the patrons of the arts that are looking at movies, mm -hmm. if they are that person now, you know, over 10 years into crowdfunding, then they're on all the platforms doing that. Like it's, they're not just on Kickstarter. If they love independent films, if they love, you know, films with queer representation, they're looking at all the platforms to find those. They're not just on one. So there really isn't like discoverability um, mm -hmm. and, and generally like being on the homepage, being in the newsletter, like the conversion rates are basically nothing across all the, all the platforms. And so it really doesn't mean anything in terms of decision-making. Definitely. Um, so let's talk about Seed and Spark. Um, so we already kind of buried the lead about like Seed and Spark is not at tech parity at all with any of these platforms. I think the tech is not even as good as GoFundMe. Um, cause I, yeah, I, I poked around GoFundMe a little bit a couple of years ago. Seed and Spark is behind because, yeah. uh, what Seed and Spark's real priority has always been is the personal touch. And it's why even before I worked for Seed and Spark, I recommended it, um, largely because of the experience I had with Christina, both as a teacher of the crowdfunding workshop that I attended a couple of years ago, but also Christina, I think you were the, um, the crowdfunding was, yeah. for like Specialist. all of my projects. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think yeah. you were the crowdfunding specialist for all of mine. So yeah, so the way that Seed and Spark works for those of you who bizarrely may not know is that um, every project that goes to Seed and Spark isn't just like approved so that we can vet if it's a racist project or not, but also you go through a feedback process. So when you submit, you get reviewed by a human being who goes through your project section by section, watches your video, looks at all of your incentive tiers, and gives you actionable advice on how to improve your page. And once you go back and forth a couple of times and both you and your crowdfunding specialist um, believe that you are set up for success and that you are um, you are making realistic choices and have made the best page for your project that you can, you will be manually approved and then you go live. So you get a high level of um, of interaction with the people who are experts at this. So like right now, I am one of the crowdfunding specialists for Seed and Spark. And hopefully you trust me as a result of this podcast and other things. <laughs> but I, I look through all of the materials. And Christina used to do this for many, many years. And, you know, we based on what you're looking to do, what your goals are, what your financial goals are, as well as your audience goals, uh, we try to make it as you know, likely as possible that you will fundraise to make the best film that you can. And for a long time, it was exclusively for filmmakers. Mm -hmm. It's still low key exclusively for filmmakers. We, you can fundraise like audio dramas and um, photography projects and music projects there. The underlying tech is hard enough on filmmakers, but like there's a bunch of added bonuses to Seed and Spark for filmmakers that just don't exist for creators of other kinds. Like there's the follower system where on Seed and Spark, there's three ways that you can interact with a project. You can give it money, obviously. You can make an in-kind contribution. You can loan something, um, which I think might be a function of Kickstarter sometimes. They adopted it like later, but I think it's a like high touch feature. I don't think everyone gets it. Got it. Okay. So that, so yeah, so that's something that is sort of shared, but not really. And then the third way somebody can support a campaign on Seed and Spark is by following it, which for the supporter is essentially a newsletter subscription. They now get all of the updates that you post to their inbox the same way that your supporters do. But what it also unlocks for the filmmaker is that when you hit certain tiers of followers uh, or certain thresholds of followers, so 250, 500, and 1,000 right now, you unlock in-kind partnership offerings. So you might get a couple of months free listing on the blacklist. You might get a copy of Final Draft 11. You might get festival waivers to a number of partner festivals that happen to be open during the time that you're you're looking to cash in on those. So like those are things that are exclusively beneficial for filmmakers and have no benefit for podcasters, generally speaking. Um, mm -hmm. So like you're welcome and we will give you the, you know, top tier crowdfunding education, but um, it's very much still a filmmaking crowdfunding platform. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I've switched because I really loved the film focus of it. You know, at the time, I, I liked the idea of like connecting with more filmmakers because we're on a specifically film crowdfunding platform. But also, I just really respected the like inclusion sort of mission of the company where it was like about un underrepresented voices, even if it wasn't a specific mandate of crowdfunding. That was like a lot of what the team talked about. And when I was like crowdfunding on Kickstarter, you know, that's like Broville over there. Mm -hmm. It's very male, it's very white. And I really found it appealing switching to a platform that at least had more similar ideals that, to me because 
From my perspective, like the platform does not matter. It is about the audience you build and your strategy and bringing them and converting them. That is all you. And so when I chose to, to switch platforms, it was, yes, like the loan feature was appealing. Yes, I uh, liked the festival waivers I could potentially get. But really what it came down to for me was I knew that I could succeed on any platform because I had done it twice already. It was just a matter of who's gonna get the percentage of the money I raise and who do I feel better about giving that to? And it really was Spark. And so that is all to just say that like the platform really doesn't matter. Yes, certain things are going to psychologically work in your favor better than others, which is why I do say if you're gonna crowdfund for a film, I go with either Spark or Kickstarter and ignore all the others. But agree. even so, um, it doesn't matter so much as the work that you put in, the strategy that you have, the, your messaging, all of the things that are about actually running a campaign, not the like physical thing it exists on. Yeah, and so yeah, I, and I just wanted to acknowledge that like, yeah, Seed and Sparks tech is not up to par with the other ones, but that doesn't it doesn't affect your ability to crowdfund. Like you it know, doesn't. You, like you 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 might experience a bug or two. It might be a little frustrating to get past like the the location thing because the way that the website understands where you are located to like categorize your project. Um, It's not super intuitive to figure out how to get past that stage of the process, but you get so much more personal feedback. You get so much of our time and energy specifically on you. We're not just saying like, yep, you're a film, go ahead. Like we, we are invested in your success and you don't get that anywhere else because we're a, a smaller boutique platform each individual project matters a lot more to us. Um, Unlike, you know, Indiegogo and Kickstarter, which because they have other lines of business, they have tech, they have, you know, rent campaigns or whatever it is that they have on their platforms. They are not overly worried if a handful of film campaigns fail, like that doesn't matter to them. But because we are very niche, every single project's success affects our ability to stay afloat. So we are really invested in you succeeding and we are going to do as much as we can to give you the tools that you need to do so. Absolutely. The thing is also, I just, you know, want to say that I was the head of education at Seed and Spark for two years and I worked for the company as a crowdfunding specialist for two years before that. And I am very proud of the fact that the education is not just a sales tool. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I really, really recommend all the education because it honestly has nothing to do with Seed and Spark, so much of it. Like you, obviously the company wants you to use Seed and Spark, but you can learn so much from all of that stuff that we're going to put in the additional resources and use it all on another platform. Like you can totally totally do that if that makes sense for you. So so really we don't want to just like, you know, reinvent the wheel here when we've got all of that available to you just under the brand of Seed and Spark. So the thing I wanted to kind of wrap up with today uh, is I wanted to do a tale of 10 crowdfunding platforms, which is I went through all of your and I's old crowdfunding campaigns um, and and got like how many people supported, how much we raised and where we raised it. And I just kind of wanted to do a lightning round of like any lessons you learned from any of these campaigns. So starting sure. in chronological order in 2011, you fundraised for Come Here Often. Uh, you had 29 backers on Kickstarter who collectively pledged 1100 So anything you remember from that campaign that you can impart as wisdom? So uh, don't 
tell people to sacrifice cups of coffee to contribute to your <laughs> campaign. That was a lesson I learned. I thought it was smart. It was like, oh, I'm asking you for $5. Like, save it here and give it to me here. Uh, but it really just set the wrong tone and made people feel like they needed to sacrifice in order to give to my film. And it kind of shamed them for how they like to spend their money. And, and that was a lesson learned. And when I changed my messaging, I, I found success. Cool. Uh, in 2012, one year later, also on Kickstarter, you crowdfunded for Summit, which you guys have heard a lot about because that was our, our first projects episode. Uh, in this campaign, you had 207 backers who pledged collectively $12,147. So even one year later, a substantial increase in both people supporting you and the money you raised. So any any big lessons from Summit? Yeah, so it's all about audience. Like that's where I really understood because as you said, I made this huge jump, right? I mean like 10 times as much. And so I had to figure out who the audience was for this film because Come Here Often was largely funded through friends and family and that wasn't gonna happen again. Like I couldn't say, I wanna make a movie, support me. It needed to be much more than that. And what I found to be so successful with Summit was because it was a genre film, it was a horror film, I got a lot of mileage out of like spooky visuals. So like mm. just, you know, we did a we did a lot of location scouts because we lost our location twice for this movie. It was like a whole bunch of, you know, mishaps and things going wrong. But because of having to make literally seven trips upstate to find a new location, I had a lot of photos to just like turn into assets for the crowdfunding campaign. Um, and really like trying to give people the tone and a taste of the the story and the genre is really how I was able to build people beyond my existing network because I, I got a lot of like retweets from, you know, accounts that are just all about horror movies, you know, and, and things like that. And so really just like playing into the tone of, of what I was making and what the audience wants really helped me there. Cool. Uh, and then two years later, 2014, you crowdfunded for kind of a collective campaign for your congested cat shorts. You raised $24,020 from 141 supporters on Seed and Spark. So uh, almost twice the money for almost half the supporters. And this is also your first Seed and Spark campaign. Any lessons here? Yeah, so um, I think that this is a really good example of how you have to keep building your audience between campaigns. So I wasn't knocking on a lot of the same doors. My feature had come out at that point. I had made a web series at that point that had built, had a big audience following. And so I was um, able to go bigger and people gave me more. I found a lot of people who did contribute before were giving me like twice as much money, not just because my goal was twice the amount, but because I had built a body of work that they now trusted, or I had built like actual fans, like a decent amount of that came from fans of my web series. And this campaign was specifically with my co-producer, Kelsey Rauber, who's also the writer of our web series, Kelsey. So we were making shorts together coming off the heels of our web series. And so we really like made the campaign all about us and our collaborations and really tried to appeal to the fandom and was like, do you want more from us because you loved this thing we made together? Well, like join us for this thing. And, and that was really what was effective was, was having a very clear pitch to a very clear audience. Cool. 
Uh, so in 2015, we I enter the chronology. Uh, so in 2015, I raised uh, $1,015 from 15 backers on Indiegogo for Brain Season 1. We had shot the pilot for class, but then decided we wanted to make the rest of the season. I think I set an arbitrary goal of like $3,000 um, with nothing behind it. I was just like, $3,000 would be nice. I raised 1000 of it. Uh, a lot of it was taken away because of fees, um, both Indiegogo fees and PayPal fees. Because at the time, the way that like transferring money into my account worked, I ended up incurring two stages of fees. So I ended up losing a lot of money. Pay attention to what fees you might incur just from transferring the money. Um, and that was a disastrous campaign for many reasons. We didn't put any thought into it. The pitch video was five minutes long, almost no cuts, all talking head of me and my alcoholic roommate whose beer was just off camera and sometimes on camera because we couldn't get him to put the beer down to film the video with us. He later flamed out. He was the reason I screamed life is pointless. Uh, he was the original um, male lead of the web series. We recast him. Uh, and that video is not available online anymore for good reasons. The only thing I will say that we did good with this campaign is that we, we did at least start the video with a clip from the pilot. So we were making it clear to people like, we've already done this. Look at how good our pilot already is. Help us make the rest of it. Like, aren't you intrigued by the, you know, the, the twist at the end of the pilot? But it was exclusively friends and family. 15 people gave us money. <laughs> and I am very grateful to those 15 people. But I didn't do any work and was justifiably not given any money. Um, and then in 2016, basically same thing. So I raised twice as much in 2016 for brain season two, we raised, uh, just a little over $2,000 from 33 backers. So I both doubled the amount of people giving me money and the amount of money I raised, but it was from 1000 to 2000. So not that much, uh, also on Indiegogo, um, because I think I, I learned about seed and spark just late enough, um, that like. It, it wasn't going to work for us for that campaign. Um, this time, the pitch video, there was no talking at all. It was just basically clips from the season one and text mixed with our theme music. Um, and like, it was an okay video, but like you didn't hear about from the filmmakers at all. So there was no personal appeal. Like I, I did the minimum amount of work this time. Um, but the thing that I learned from this campaign was actually I started to learn about the audience building side of it. And our most popular incentive was uh, I think around maybe it was like either 20 or $30. And um, I wrote long winded apocalypse memorandums um, uh, or memor in memoriams. So uh, anyone who contributed that amount, I would write a very heroic like thing that would come out in the paper the next week uh, after your death. So like this person went down in a blaze of glory, they left behind 20 grandchildren, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, basically a creative writing prompt where I would imagine a very impressive zombie apocalypse death for you and would write like a very, you know, dramatic retelling of your final moments on the zombie infested earth. And that was fun. And those were fun to write and people shared them a lot. And I got a number of people contributing because they saw a friends and were like, oh, I want one of those. That sounds funny. And so again, not that many people, but I started to learn the principle of making my incentives more than just a poster um, that I was going to lose money on because the only people who bought it were four friends and it cost more money to send them the poster than it cost them to pay for it. So I, I finally understood the principle of something digital and on brand because then it made my friends who I hadn't talked to in a while, but who were horror fans and who were zombie fans interested in what I was doing, even if they didn't realize that I was a filmmaker before that. So that's what I'll say about that. 
2017, uh, about a donkey on Seed and Spark with, uh, this is another Christina project, obviously, raised $21,612 from 323 supporters. That's the the biggest number of supporters that you ever had um, and about on par with how much you raised for Congested Cat. So what did you learn from About a Donkey? Yeah, so About a Donkey was tough because we crowdfunded in February of 2017. So it was like right after the Trump win and inauguration. And I... And it was at a point very similar to right now where people were giving to a lot of causes. Like that was sort of Mm -hmm. consuming a lot of people's money because everyone was freaking out about what he was going to do, which unfortunately he ended up doing all the things, um, stripping rights from people and and enacting horrible policies. And so we we were all just giving money all over the place to these causes. and, And I was sort of like, how do I justify asking for money right now for a film. And so I really had to like focus in on the why, like why it matters in a Trump world. Why does this film, like why do we want to make it? Who is it going to benefit? How how are we going to use it to, you know, create a better world ultimately? Like especially as we're heading into at least four years of this horrific, horrific, hateful leader. And so I found that people were giving less which is why it's like twice as many backers almost to raise almost as much money for my previous campaign. People were giving less because they had less money. A lot of them were like, I'm spent, I'm spending money all over the place. But people were still very much wanting and willing to give. So there were a lot of people who were just giving, you know, half the amount that they did before or even less, but still wanting to support. Um, And we found that the like followers, this is like a whole... we don't even have in the spreadsheet, but if you compare our amount of followers in the Congested Cat Shorts campaign to, I believe, over a thousand followers for About a Donkey, there was just like so much support because people loved that we were making something hopeful because like no one was feeling hopeful at that point. And we were making something hopeful that also had like a mission to try and spread some empathy. Um, And and that really like got us a, a, a following that even outside of the money, um, really helped kind of kick off our distribution because all of those backers and then all of those followers were like our marketing team when we were on the circuit. So that's a big part of how we were able to sell out screenings for our festivals and also how we were able to choose which festivals to submit to because we were like, oh, we have a pocket of people in this city that is following our campaign. So we probably could sell out a screening there. We could get some like momentum and word spreading there. And so that was like, uh, I think, you know, for me, even though we raised slightly less than the last campaign, and I should say the 2014 campaign is when that random guy gave $5,000. So that's a big part of why. Um, yeah, but even though we raised less, slightly less with About a Donkey, we had so many more people on board. And for me, it was like the culmination of everything I had learned in previous campaigns, kind of really executed very well. And and uh, and yeah, and I also like to say that I started raising $1,000 and it was like the hardest thing I ever did. And raising $20,000 was not harder like it wasn't any harder it was as hard as raising that thousand dollars because i had built a bigger pool of people and so mm-hmm. i could not just raise twenty thousand dollars in 2011 i would have failed miserably because i wasn't there yet but i it's just like to say that you can kind of you can get yourself out of where you start with crowdfunding so 
it is not an equalizer. It does not fix capitalism. It does not fix the <laughs> fact that we have like an egregiously divided class structure in the United States where there are people that, you know, where CEOs can make like a hundred times the amount that their, that their workers make or more. Um, it doesn't fix any of that. Obviously, like there's, there were people at, who were my, you know, uh, career level, who were my lack of experience in 2011, who could have raised $20,000 because they knew rich people. And I couldn't do that because I didn't know rich people. However, crowdfunding is a tool to like work your way out at least so that mm -hmm. what my, my ability to like raise money was not completely tied to my starting point in life. It was not completely tied to my social circle. I was able to use the internet, build an audience and be able to go bigger and bigger. And so like, that's kind of the thing. It doesn't fix everything. It doesn't, you know, even out things in our very, very unequal industry, but it does create a path for you to grow and like use that growth to get bigger funding. And, and I yeah. think my trajectory is specifically an example of that. And that's the most recent time you crowdfunded, right? 2017? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't crowdfunded since then. Okay. So to round us out, uh, also in 2017, later that year, I actually was involved in two crowdfunding campaigns that crowdfunded at the same time. And it was a nightmare for me. Um, so these <laughs> I'm combining because neither of them were my projects, but I was a producer on both of them. Um, the projects were Motherload, uh, which is now known as an Over Under, and Stray Season 2, both web series. Although Motherload was just raising for, I think, two episodes. I don't think they were raising for the full amount. Both of them raised almost exactly the same amount of money. Uh, Motherload raised 12180 and Stray Season 2 raised 12280 Both of these projects hit their green light, which on Seed and Spark means you hit 80% of your goal. Neither of them got 100. And I will tell you from behind the scenes, the creators of both of these projects juiced them a little bit to get to that level to like mm. encourage people to give. So these were not like far and out successes. But the other thing about them, Motherload had 114 people who contributed. Stray Season 2 had 141. And in both cases, the way that they raised their money is that they asked for more from fewer people because both projects were created by older people. So I was like mm. 25 around this time. But uh, the Motherload was d targeting the motherhood demographic. So women in the their upper 30s and beyond. So people who had been established for a little bit longer, who were further set in their careers and were able to give a little bit more at a time. Um, and then Stray Season 2 was created by a guy who at the time was 36. And most of his friends who weren't in the arts were professionals and had been professionals for 10 plus years. So they also had a little bit more money to give. So I didn't actually learn a lot from either of these campaigns other than, <laughs> wow, I my target audience is broke college students. That's why I'm not raising any money. Boy, I would love to be a 36-year-old man who knows professionals. <laughs> I also want to say, like, yeah, these were these were your campaigns and that you were producers and you were like guiding strategy, I assume. And I and I did a lot of posting and I got a lot right. of contributors for both. But so that's like interesting because I was gonna say usually, you know, it's nearly impossible to be crowdfunding for two projects at once because you're stretching your own audience. Mm -hmm. And like how do people decide which to give to? But in this case, like, it wasn't you trying to make two things at once. It was you sort of being uh, support, and they were two very different projects yeah. and two very different audiences. Yeah, basically the women gave to the mother load and the men gave mm -hmm. to Stray because Stray was is uh, it just actually came out. Mother load I don't think has ever come out publicly, but it did a small festival circuit, and then I have no idea what happened with that 
for a lot of reasons, I don't work with those people anymore. And it was not a bad situation, but you know, it just didn't work out. Um, so I don't really know what's going on with that project. Stray season two just came out. The first half of it just came out three years later. <laughs> so it had a lot of post-production problems, but yeah, it's a, it's like a bromantic comedy is how he calls it. Um, it's about like, it's a very broy dating show. Um, and so yeah, very different demographics. And as a result, it didn't split my audience too much. But speaking of my audience, uh, the first genuine audience building campaign that I feel like I was successful at was in 2018 when I raised for Sam and Patter to Press season two, which is my web series. Uh, we raised uh, about $1,700 from 49 people, but importantly, our ask was $700, which we hit in the first 15 hours. And the reason we decided to crowdfund is because I had sworn off of crowdfunding at this point, And then I interviewed Christina for the podcast that I used to do for Starable. And Christina reminded me that the point of crowdfunding is not to raise money. That's a added bonus, but the point of crowdfunding mm-hmm funding is to get a lot of people to prove themselves that um, and prove to you that they care about this project and want to see it succeed. And so if you leverage crowdfunding, not just for the fundraising, but also for the audience support and to like make a big splash and let people know, hey, a new project is coming, pay attention. You can get a lot more out of it, even if you're raising for a relatively small amount. So we ended up raising 253% of our goal, our $700 goal. We, <laughs> It's the first project I've ever broken even in. We didn't pay anyone because obviously we couldn't, but it was like a five person crew. So, you know, everyone was there and they knew why they were there, but um, we didn't have to out of pocket pay for any of our crazy props or for food. Everyone got food every day. Um, And I, I learned a lot from that campaign just in terms of like, people liked it when we were goofy and they liked it when we were vulnerable. Um, And people really loved that show. They couldn't give much, but the people who really loved that show came through for it and showed up to our live streams and like made jokes with us on Twitter. Um, and that was a really lovely experience. Uh, and then finally, 2020. Uh, yes, I did crowdfund in 2020. Um, it, we crowdfunded at the end of February through the end of March. So during the first round of stay-at-home orders, which was an adventure, especially because we were going to culminate the campaign in a live screening with all of our friends and supporters in New York, which ended up not happening. I had a a supporter pay for a plane ticket to come out to the the screening and he didn't end up getting to come and I feel really bad about that even though you know I couldn't have helped it but yeah one of a fan of mine who had followed me from the past several campaigns was finally like you know what I love your work so much and you're doing this live screening I would love to meet you I'm gonna pay for a plane ticket I'm gonna come like actually come to your screening and then of course it got canceled like a week and a half later so that was devastating but uh we for buy-in my my film we talked about a little bit during the last uh, episode because that was the one I won the festival circuit. Uh, we raised $3,425 from 86 supporters. So it's the most money I've ever raised and the most supporters I've ever had. But I make a lot smaller projects than Christina does. And I tend to not have equal creative partners, at least in terms of the logistics. My creative partners in film tend to be like, We are partners in the production aspects to a certain degree, but the logistics and the the fundraising um, and the marketing falls to me singularly. Um, So my my reach is limited. And what I would say about crowdfunding is to not limit your reach. (laughs) Have somebody Mm -hmm. actually helping you. And this one was the best that I had for that because my um, my co-writer and the star of that film was not as invested because he felt very uncomfortable asking people for money and hadn't had the experience I had and the you know crowdfunding education I had but he did his best and he he did come through in a lot of ways that I wouldn't have been able to come through um, so that having a more equal partnership 
paid off and I was able to pay my entire cast and crew for that film in a time where they really needed the money when all of them lost their jobs unexpectedly. So that was a really a wonderful experience. And it was the most fun campaign I've ever run because we that film is about pyramid schemes and capitalism. And we made our crowdfunding campaign a pyramid scheme. And I just thought that was fun. And everyone else also seemed to think that was fun and enjoyed, you know, (laughs) rising up the pyramid and it didn't work exactly as we'd hoped. We hoped people would recruit each other more to like raise up the pyramid. But, um, you know, we were competing with newsworthiness. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I can't speak to how much it would have worked in another circumstance. But I learned a lot from that campaign. Um, it was very different of a type of project. So I didn't get a lot of the same supporters from my last campaign. But um, yeah, it was it was fine. We, we had a good time. Two things I wanted to just add. Yeah. Uh, so... The average raise for film, just so like, because we're talking numbers so much, the average raise for a film tends to be less than $10,000 across all platforms. And so while like Brie is, is being a little self-deprecating about <laughs> her numbers, um, that's like, you know, that's kind of standard because it's really hard to crowdfund. It's really hard to to ask people for money and and raise and convert people because a lot of people want to support but don't always you know want to put the money up themselves or can't afford to or whatever it may be um and it's hard to build an audience you know like we again like brie has a great audience for her work and that was so much work to build in and of itself but it's also like a specific kind of audience that isn't yeah isn't very yeah, affluent, our, right? my asexual audience did not come around for buy-in because <laughs> like because i i was primarily working in um, in comedy before this and specifically comedy about mental health and buy-in is a psychological thriller with some of the same actors that people had come to know and love, but had nothing to do with mental health, had nothing to do with sexuality and was two male leads, um, or at the Mm -hmm. time and the characters identify as male. Um, even if the actors don't necessarily these days, but yeah, it was not what people had come to expect from my oeuvre. And as a result, it's also why with last episode, we talked about this. Um, my priorities in our festival run was just about like getting some award wins for it. So we could say we were award winning. And so I could get a little bit of extra validation for my directing, but I don't want to do buy-in again. I don't want to make that kind of movie. So it was a kind of awkward thing to do because like, it was very much like, this is sort of a special opportunity. This is the only time we're going to do this, Mm -hmm. but we're really proud of it. So we hope you come out. Um, and we had more, strangers or people I didn't know as well contributing to that campaign than any other. And it was just because the campaign itself was like fun. It was a fun campaign to be a part of, especially in the early days of the pandemic when everything was fucking bleak. So, um, and getting to promote the fact that we were supporting artists in a time where it was going to be really, really hard for them also, I think benefited us. The last thing I was going to say, um, in terms of like going bigger because you asked me if 2017 was the last time I crowdfunded and I said yes because I'm for for myself like not going to crowdfund again until it's another feature and part of that is because I think when you have people who have supported you again and again there is this expectation that as you go bigger they're going to get bigger and I know like when I crowdfunded for two shorts coming off of the heels of crowdfunding a feature with Summit and crowdfunding uh, or having a web series, which was like the equivalent of a feature in terms of runtime and all of that. Mm-hmm. I think that people expected like these two shorts were going to be so epic because I was asking for more money for them than from the feature when really I was just trying to pay everyone and pay everyone really, really well. 
um, because everyone had worked for free on our web series and I was just trying to like pay those people back essentially and give them a paying gig. And so they really are like very simple shorts, but I think people had like different expectations because my audience for the most part, you know, is not filmmakers. And, and that's how I am able to, you know, not just like be knocking on other artists' doors. I, I really try and build like real audience that are not artists themselves. But mm. when I came back for Battle Donkey, I was like, okay, I can only really crowdfund for another feature because I they don't get it. Like they're expecting what they get to be like an equivalent of where I'm at in a way. Right. And so so I don't think I could crowdfund another short unless it was gonna be some like sci-fi epic thing with like visual effects and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so my next crowdfunding campaign that I anticipate would be for for the feature that I'm trying to get off the ground in the yeah. next two years. And for me, I don't think I'd crowdfund again unless it was for a project with an asexual lead, um, because that is really the credibility I've built up. That's really the audience I built up. Um, and that is what a lot of people who follow both me and my production company account are waiting for. And I know that's what they're in it for. So um, it doesn't seem like it makes sense for me to tap into an audience that I'm not really invested in building that isn't about that kind of content because that's like, that's my thing. Um, but yeah, so listener questions. So the first one comes from Jules. Should you email literally everyone you have a contact for just in case or curate a list of more likely people? Uh, and Jules is uh, specifically asking for crowdfunding purposes. So we did a lunch and learn with Seed and Spark <laughs> that's all about emails and like how to build an email list. So I really, really recommend that you watch that and it will be in our additional resources links. But generally the way that I, when I'm planning to crowdfund, I divide people up into buckets. And part of that bucketing process is the like people that I am definitely going to reach out to that are very likely to support me. And then the people that like I really don't want to reach out to, but I will if I get desperate. And then there's like people that I'm just never going to for whatever reason, uh, Mm -hmm. because I know that they don't give to campaigns or they're not very supportive of me, but they're like my family who's like distant or something or whatever the reason is, or like they hate horror movies and they're just never going to be interested, you know? So Mm -hmm. that's usually how I approach it and it should always be you know audience focused and it and it it can change from project to project like what I just said maybe someone will never give to my horror films but they totally will when I make another comedy and and they get put in a different bucket then for that project yep yeah, that's 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 the best way to think about it. But they should all be on the list because you never know. Oh, Maybe yeah. you'll make something down the line that like this person you've never tapped them, but this is the per- this is the one opportunity that it's going to be perfect mm-hmm. for. My last piece of just like blanket advice is to approach asking for money as not asking for money, but asking for people to join you in making a thing because it matters for some specific reason because that is the same for investors that is the same for crowdfunding and that is the same for grants like it Mm -hmm. is all about a mission that you're asking people to get behind and money is secondary Mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's insanely hard to do and we get it but the more (laughs) you can make asking for money not about the money the more successful you're going to be at getting money uh wild but true that's right 
All right. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music and Kaylee Brown for our podcast art and to Ezra Lee, our editor, especially because this episode is so long. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening. And links to learn more about all of them, as always, are in our episode description. And remember to subscribe so you get notified of all of our new episodes dropping every other Thursday and rate us five stars with a nice review. If you haven't already, it really does make a difference. Also, be sure to subscribe to our Substack, breakingoutpod.substack.com, link in the episode description as well, for the bonus materials that we've talked about throughout this episode for this episode, as well as for all of our past and future ones. Um, And speaking of future things, next episode in two Thursdays from now, we will be talking freelancing and going solo professionally with director and writer Liz Manischel. So be sure to tune in.